How you doing? Good, good. So a couple things before I, before I get to the passage. Uh, my, first, my first lead pastorate was in Iowa City, Iowa, my own hometown, town I grew up in. And I bet probably I'm not, fairly often somebody would say to me, well, you know what they say, prophets never welcome in their own hometown. To which I would respond, yeah, I know, which is why I'm not a prophet, I'm a pastor. Right? Prophets are people who come in and they just, and they're sent by the Lord to do a particular work, right? To call people back to repentance. Okay, but a pastor has, that's part of what a pastor does, but the most, the most important thing that a pastor does is shepherding and caring for people along the journey of them being shaped into the image of Christ. And probably the hardest thing that a pastor has to do is not writing a sermon on Sunday morning. That's, I mean, it's, it's difficult, but it's by far not the hardest thing. And it's not trying to figure out what worship songs to sing. And it's not trying to figure out how the communion should work. The hardest thing by far for any pastor is trying to keep the church together. That is the hardest thing to do. By far. And the amount of stress that that results in is one of the leading reasons why pastors leave the pastorate. Not because they don't enjoy pastoring, not because they don't enjoy worship, not because they don't enjoy sermons, but because they feel completely overwhelmed and unable to hold the congregation together. And so they leave. And so today, what I'm going to preach on, because this is the blessing of preaching through a book. The next passage that comes to us in 1 Peter is about be subject everyone to all human governmental institutions. And some of you, maybe, are thinking to yourself, oh man, how do I have to use the restroom so I don't have to listen to what's about to be said about living differently in light of our government. But this is the next passage. And so what I want you to hear me say is that this is not a prophetic sermon. This is a pastoral sermon. And I understand that the church, meaning this local church, is not united in their political ideologies. The first church that I pastored was 90% Democrats, and they were absolutely faithful Christians. And so this morning, when we, when we have this sermon, I want you to hear the message of the gospel from a pastoral perspective. And if I say anything that is offensive to you, will you just come and see me? Because I'd be happy to talk to you about it. Okay? So with that said, uh, let's stand for the reading of Scripture. Uh, this is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. But I'm going to start with verse 9 because verses 9 through 12 are the foundation of every single thing that Peter is about to say. And so here's what it says. 
You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the the day of visitation. Do you got any specifics, Peter? Yes, I do. Be subject to... For the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, to the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing so you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us rules of the house so that we do not get out of control and destroy it. Father, thank you for your son Jesus, who you offered up, because that is nearly impossible for us to do. In Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. Okay, so, a couple, couple quick facts for you. Uh, how many people here are on some form of social media? TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, WhatsApp. Okay, let's put them up high. Put them up high and look around and see your neighbors who are on some form of... In- okay, great. Okay, a couple true things I need to tell you about. First of all, social media does not care about the unity of this church. Let me say that again. Social media does not care about the unity of this church. Social media does not care about your spiritual discipleship. Social media does not care about your emotional discipleship. Social media does not care about your relational discipleship. Social media does not care about your vocational discipleship. Social media does not care about your ideological discipleship. Social media does not care about your cultural discipleship. Social media does not care about your missional discipleship. Social media cares about making money. And they sell you to do that. They sell you to do that. You are the thing that's being sold on social media. Not shirts, not dresses, not bathing suits, not things that cut up bananas. The thing that's being sold on social media is you for money. How do they do that? Well, they don't want you to know. This past week, I attended a conference in Nashville with leaders, 50 different leaders from the faith community. I think I got my invitation on accident. I'm not really sure how I ended up there with uh, national religious leaders from the Christian community, from the Muslim community, and from the Jewish community, because the purpose of this um, 
gathering was to discuss the role of social media in the polarization of our faith communities and the country. So a couple little interesting pieces of information for you. Uh, I, did, I, was, I left there so disturbed that, honestly, I just, I, I left pretty disturbed. We'll talk more about that later. Uh, if you're between the ages of 11 and 15 and you are a girl, and you type into one of your social media apps, I would like to know what are the most, what are the coolest bathing suits that I should look at and maybe buy for me this summer. Social media will show you those things. There are lots of people whose pages are just dedicated to showing you swimsuits. But social media is also going to show you extreme dieting. Because if you're a girl and you're between the ages of 11 and 15 and you're thinking about a swimsuit, you should absolutely be thinking about your body image, they say. And you should come to the conclusion that it's, you know, it needs some work. And so you should start dieting and do whatever it takes to lose 20 pounds. If you're a boy between the ages of 11 and 15 and you're on social media and you maybe just had your girlfriend break up with you and so you type in, I hate girls. Social media is going to say, you know what? There are other options. And it's going to start showing up in your Twitter feed or your Facebook feed or your Instagram feed or your TikTok feed. Because social media does not care about the unity of this church and they don't care about the unity of this nation. If you've been watching TV this week, one of the things that you maybe saw is that a recent poll was done and 50% of the people in the United States of America believe that civil war is coming in this country within the next five years. I see some people nodding. Because they think that that's true. And if you doubt that, this is a book by Jim Belcher. He's an ordained PCA minister. He wrote one of my favorite books about churches called Deep Church. It was absolutely amazing. He's written this book, The Cold Civil War, Overcoming Polarization, Discovering Unity, and Healing the Nation. And in this book, he basically says, we are in big trouble. And the church is playing a role that it should not be playing. David French, another Christian who is uh, a New York Times best-selling author, wrote this book, Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. These are two intelligent people who are very smart. David French is a former, I believe he's a former uh, army ranger. Best-selling author. These two people are not unintelligent. They're not conspiracy theorists. They're saying that when they look and they see what's happening, they have real concerns. And Christians are along for the ride on this. And that's concerning. So, YouTube, TikTok... Twitter and Facebook are all part of our daily lives. I mean, that's just the world that we live in. Even if you're not on it, the people that you know are on it. 
and the people that you know are being influenced by it. When you are on Facebook or YouTube or Instagram for more than 20 minutes, there is a switch. And I buy a switch. I, I asked this question. I'm like, are you talking about a literal switch? And she said, yes, I'm talking about a literal switch in, in, the, in the software. This is a C, former CIA analyst who studied, their job was to study how social media is used in radicalization. And she said, once you're on social media for 20 minutes, they know that they can start sending you more extreme, kind of fringy stuff because their job is to keep you on it. And so now you're probably thinking, okay, when are we going to get to the part where there's a sermon here? Okay? And that's okay. There, this is a sermon. But I want to lay some groundwork so that we're all together as we move into what Peter is saying. And what Peter is saying is that as Christians, we are called to live differently with our government than everybody else does. We are called to live differently. Specifically, we're called to live differently when we are on the weak side of a power differential. Most of the New Testament, if not all of it, is written to Christians who are on the weak side of power differentials. Okay? And so the, the encouragement that Jesus and Peter and Paul and John are writing and James are writing is to people who are on the weak side of a power differential and are trying to figure out how should I live, including with the government. So the proposition of this sermon is that we're called to live in a posture of faithful presence, which I'll describe again, with our government and not in this kind of adversarial mocking posture. And that requires us to be fully formed as disciples. So, what we're going to talk about today is the first of a series of four what are called house tables. And house tables are used by Peter and they're used by Paul. And so if you want to write some notes down, you can write down Ephesians 5, 22 through 6, 9. Ephesians 25, 22 through 6, 9. Colossians 3, 18 through 4, 1. Colossians 3, 18 through 4, 1. And Titus 2, 1 through 10. And here's what a house table is. House tables not unique to Christianity. House tables existed in Greco-Roman culture. And it was, how should we live in this society? You know, some of us have these little wooden posters or whatever that say, in this house, we do, we do love, we do Saturday night movie night, we do apologies, we do hugs. They have this whole kind of like house tables, and you mount them on your wall. Same type of thing. These house tables were actually oftentimes mounted in homes, and they were like, as a citizen of this country, how am I supposed to live? What are some rules? And so what Peter and Paul and James are doing is they're taking those and they're pulling them through the lens of Christian faith and saying, let me give you a list of house rules so that you don't get out of control and destroy the house. And so we have these conversations that happen about how should I live with the government? 
How should husbands and wives interact? How should masters and servants interact? How should parents and children interact? These are all part of of house tables. And the idea was that Christians are called to a different way of living than everybody else. And that meant that we were supposed to study these. That we were supposed to pursue these. And that's what discipleship is. So to understand this passage, we have to remember a few important things. This passage, which says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor's supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, live as people who are free, Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Was written to who? People living in the first century of Turkey. That's who that's to. It's not to you. You're reading other people's mail. That doesn't mean that it doesn't apply to you, but it does mean that you're not the original audience. And because you're not the original audience, we have to do a little bit of work. And we have to say, how should I understand this passage if I'm not the original audience? How do I read it properly? Who were these people? These people were under Roman occupation. These people, it says in 1 Peter 1, that they're part of the diaspora. Which means they're not even living in the place that they want to live. Maybe they were... uh, fugitives or exiles from Jerusalem maybe they were exiles from Rome but they find themselves in Asia Minor as sojourners and exiles living in a territory that is unfamiliar to them where they have no political agency where many of them who've been converted are being converted out of Judaism and so now they are they are kind of being ostracized by their own religious community that they used to know, so they really have no home. No one likes them. No one is thrilled about them. In fact, they're probably seen as probably one of the biggest hindrances to the flourishing of the community that they're in. And so Peter says, listen, I I want you to understand how to live in this world. So we have to ask, what is the first century? How did the first century respond to this? How does this apply in the first century after Constantine converts to the faith and basically says, hey, if you're under my domain now, you're Christians? How did it get applied then? How did it get applied in 1939 Germany? Right? When the Nazis are in power. What did it mean for a Christian in 1939 in Germany to be subject to the governing authorities? What did that mean? What does it mean for somebody in Iran to honor the emperor? What does it mean for somebody in China to honor the emperor? So what I want us to know as we begin to move into this is that America has 330 million people, which is a lot. The planet has 8 billion, which means that 4.25% of the planet's population are living in the United States, which means that this passage applies to Christians living in 95% of the rest of the world. 
So whatever applications we're going to make about this passage has to work in 95% of places that aren't called America. Because if you're going to come to conclusions about it that are based on like, well, this passage is really talking about America, you're going to come to some very, very confused and faulty positions. But that doesn't mean we don't contextualize it because that's where we are. We are here. We are in America. So first point. Everything that Peter says, everything that he says is based in the gospel. The first two chapters are all about the gospel. Believing in a salvation that is kept for you safe and secure, undefiled, unfading, unperishing, it is kept for you. You have already been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. That's what it says. It says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Over and over again in these first two chapters, before Peter starts moving into these house tables, the thing that he's drilling into them is if you do not understand the gospel... If you don't understand the gospel, if you're not a fully formed disciple, you are going to move all over the place. And so the thing I want to do is I want to dig a deep, deep, deep foundation. And I want to build it for you. And I want to build it on the centrality of Christ and the gospel. Because if you don't start there, you are going to end up in all kinds of places that you shouldn't. So in each of these... Relationships to government, relationships to spouses, relationships to children, relationships to co-workers. Everything is foundational on the gospel. Number two, as Christians, our attitudes, our attitudes are different in engaging the government. Here's what it says. It says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And that's a word we all love, right? Be subject. Be subject. It's the same phrase he's going to use for wives. It's the same phrase he's going to use for servants. Be subject. But I don't want to be subject. They're bad. They're wrong. Be subject. There's, 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 no, there's no conditional here. There's just be subject. Peter is writing to people who are on the wrong side, on the uncomfortable side of a power differential that they don't want to be on. He's grounded them in the gospel, and now he tells them, be subject to every human institution. Every human institution. Well, you know, maybe Paul's or Peter's just going off, because you know Peter... He's that guy. Paul says in Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. It's almost like they're comparing notes, isn't it? (laughs) For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Well, but, but mine has. No, every human institution has been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. That's what Paul says. That's in Scripture. 
word for word. It's almost exactly what Peter is saying. It's almost as if people in the first century were having a difficult time trying to figure out how to relate to their government. Who knew? Who knew this was a difficult thing to do? For 2,000 years, not much has changed. So I want you to know that we are all in good company, right? We are all in good company on this. To do it intentionally, to do it willingly to be subject. It doesn't say you are subject. It says be subject. That means you have an action to do. Take and and adopt a posture of I am subject to this. And if you don't think that this is just a localized uh, issue or that it's been going on for a long time, ask yourself this question. Did Adam and Eve have a problem with being subject to authority in the, new heaven, or in, in the Garden of Eden? They were given a set of rules, things that they should obey. If you obey, it's going to be awesome for you. You're going to live forever. It's going to be great. Just have one thing you can't do. Just one. It's, one it's, it's a small thing. Don't eat from that tree over there. We good? We good? Totally good? Okay. Hey, hey, uh, did he really say? Don't you want to be like God? He's holding back from you. Your life will be way more awesome if you don't do the thing he told you to do. Just come on. This is who we are as sinful people. We do not like being subject to every institution. We just don't like it. And so it's difficult for us. So everything is grounded in the gospel. Two, our attitudes are different as people engaging in the government. Third, our motivations are different in engaging the government. Why are we supposed to be subject Why are we supposed to live as people who are free? And when Peter says live as people who are free, he's not talking about the First Amendment. Do you know how I know that he's not talking about the First Amendment? Because this was written in the first century. So I know for a fact that Peter is not referencing the freedom of religion in the First Amendment when he says live as people who are free. It's not anywhere in his mind. He's not even thinking about it. He's talking about freedom in the gospel. And this is critical to understanding our motivations. Why should I be subject? Oh, I'm glad you asked, Peter says, for the Lord's sake. Wait, why do you want me to be subject to these Roman people who don't believe in the gospel? For the Lord's sake. Yeah, but for the Lord's sake. You're saying that somehow it's beneficial to the Lord. It makes the Lord look good. It brings glory and worship and honor to the Lord when I obey human institutions. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Do it for the Lord's sake. That's what it says. That's the motivation. Is there any other reason why I would do it? Yes. Because if you are subject to every human institution, you will put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I would ask you to raise your hand if you know foolish people, but I'm not going to because I'm afraid that most of you will raise your hands, as you probably should, right? But when we are not subject to the Lord, to to the earthly institutions of government, 
when we act in a way that is contrary to the way that we are called to act as Christians, we are reinforcing the narrative of people who think that Christianity is a crock. And you know where they get that? On social media. There is something, and I'm not making this up, this is a technical term, it's called nutpicking. You want to know what nutpicking is? It's when some crazy person on the internet says something absolutely nutty and the algorithms are like, that's awesome. I'm putting that in your timeline. And then you're going to interact with it. And every time you start interacting with that nutty, crazy thing on Facebook or Instagram and you think to yourself, I'm totally about to win them over. They're about to be convinced. It doesn't matter because Instagram doesn't care about you convincing them. What Instagram cares about is you staying on social media and having this debate. And the more you have it, the more they say, oh, they like this crazy stuff. I will put more crazy stuff in their feed because they clearly like it, which means I can show them more ads, which means we can make more money. This is the circle that happens. So that when we get on to these social media things, we become convinced that most of the world thinks a certain way that most of the world doesn't. 99.95% of people on social media do not interact in comments. It's a true thing. So when you're reading the comments, you're reading 0.5% or less of what people think. But you're coming to the conclusion, well, everybody must think this that it disagrees with me. Keep in mind, they picked the nut out and put it in front of you. So that you read through that and you're like, oh, well, see, this is what people who disagree with me, they're all like this right here. This is representative of everybody. Because social media does not care about you serving Christ. That is not their mission. Their mission is not to help you be subject, therefore, to every human institution. Their subject is to make money. Why else should I do it? You should do it not only for the church, but for the world. Look at this last passage in verse 17. I want to just point something to you. It says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So you have this honor happens twice, okay? So I'm going to go technical, exegetical on you for like two minutes. So in the Greek, what's happening here is kind of like you would call it maybe like a little inclusio sandwich. And here's what I mean. Honor everyone means the world. It means non-Christian people. Honor the emperor is also presuming a non-Christian emperor. These are, these are our two bookends. Love the brotherhood, fear God. That's for the church. This is aimed at Christian people. So Peter's argument is that the, way, the reason, the motivation for doing this is both for the world, right? And for the benefit of, of Christians, of honoring God. Does that make sense? So he sandwiched our relationship to each other as a motivation. Why should I do this? Because it's loving your neighbor. It's loving the brotherhood. It's loving the church. It's fearing God. It's respecting God. That's why you do it. 
It's honoring to the world. And when we honor the world, I don't mean we engage in sinful behavior, but I mean that we become to them a foretaste of the goodness of the gospel. They're like, oh, these are reasonable people. Where could I get more of that? And then finally, so everything is grounded in the gospel. Our attitudes are different. Our motivations are different. And our methods are different. As Christians, our methods are different. And here's what I mean. It says in verse 15, by doing good. By doing good. What does that mean? I'm supposed to honor the emperor by doing good. Can you flesh that out for me? What are good things that I could do? It's more than just being subject. It's actually acting on it. Luke says, actually, it's Jesus... Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for he is kind, uh, for he is kind. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So he's telling his followers, do good. Do good things. Ask yourself, what good thing could I do? And he says that you're supposed to act as servants of the Lord. So now he said that the way that we're supposed to be subject to every institution is by doing good and by acting as servants of the Lord. So this is the one time where the what would Jesus do bracelet comes in handy. What would Jesus do in this situation? What would Jesus do if he was face to face with an emperor opposed to the gospel, if he was face to face with a Roman ruler who did not believe in God's mission of redeeming the world and said, I am going to put you to death, what would Jesus do? How would he handle himself in that moment? The author and creator of all salvation who commands the armies of the Lord, who has the ability to grab himself a giant white horse and come storming out of heaven with a giant sword coming out of his mouth, destroying all of his enemies. What does it mean to do good and to serve? What does that look like? For us. Jeremiah knows. Jeremiah is helpful. Jeremiah writes a letter. We read part of it today that says, Hey, here's what I need you to do. You're going to be exiles in a city you don't want to be in, uh, in a kingdom that you can't imagine because it's like the most wicked, 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 wicked kingdom that you've ever heard of. And I'm sending you there intentionally. Do you want me to destroy it? Do you want me to work against it? We could totally do that. We could bring that bad boy down. No, no, I don't want that, actually. Well, we should keep our luggage packed, though, right? Because we're probably going to leave any minute. Matter of fact, there was just a prophet here who said, you know, we're, we're out of here in like three weeks. No, no, you should unpack. And you should give your children to be married. And you should, you know, buy homes and plant gardens. 
you should plan on staying for 70 years. Okay, but wait, but you're going to totally make this like the kingdom of heaven on earth, right? No. No, that's not going to happen either. He's going to still be a pagan the whole time. Okay, uh, so what do you want me to do then? Oh, yeah, hey, uh, Daniel, would you do me a favor? Would you mind going into his court and giving him really great military advice and really great advice on, like, how to run the country so it flourishes, it flourishes, so they have grain in case there's a famine? Oh, is that, is that sound familiar with that? Ever? Oh, Joseph, oh, wait. That God took people who loved him and put them in places where they were asked and privileged to serve people who didn't agree with their Christian worldview or their pre-Christian worldview. And he tells them, hey, serve and bless and seek the welfare of the place that I have sent you. Yeah, but I kind of want to destroy it. (laughs) Jesus hears you. Jesus is coming back. He does not need our help in destroying it. When it is time for judgment, the Lord will judge, and he will judge more severely than you could possibly imagine. People will be condemned to judgment for the rest of their existence, which is eternal. And he's going to do it objectively. And you do not want to be on the wrong side of that. You do not want to say, yeah, I heard your whole commandment about being subject, but I decided that didn't apply to me. Because I saw some stuff on social media that says it's time for me to rise up. So I did. And I ignored Romans 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2 because, well, I just decided that I know better than you, God. This is, this is a problem. So, thankfully, those of us who are Reformed... Um, so I used to be a part of a Bible church. And uh, it was Independent Fundamental Baptist Bible Church, and that's the way you say it, because you have to kind of have to roll off your tongue, Independent Fundamental Baptist. Uh, it's kind of like that. You have a nice little cadence, right? And so a friend of mine, at one point, after I had been to seminary... Uh, was applying for a job at a a church that we used to go to. And so he was talking to me about the 40-page document that he had to come up with about what he believed in every single category. And he's like, hey, would you share yours with me? I'm like, sure. Take me two seconds. I sent it to him. He's like, what's this? I said, it's the Westminster Confession of Faith. He goes, you didn't write something out by yourself? I'm like, no, I just, that. We just start with that, and then they just ask you, is there anything you disagree with? And I say, well, yes, Sabbath, I I don't know what that really means. Can I play with my kids? And he's like, so you didn't, like, hand write a 40-page document? I'm like, no, because that would be crazy. That's the benefit of being in, in in a denomination like this. And thankfully, our denomination... Uh, we, we subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith, and they have something to say about this. So you should judge my sermon in terms of Scripture and the Westminster Confession of Faith, which says, Westminster Larger Catechism, question number 127, what is the honor that inferiors, subjects, owe to their superiors, those in governmental institutions? Answer, 
The honor which inferiors owe to their superiors is all due reverence in heart, word, and behavior, prayer and thanksgiving for them, imitation of their virtues and graces, willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels, due submission to their corrections, fidelity to defense and maintenance of their persons and authorities according to their several ranks, and the nature of their places, bearing with their infirmities and covering their superiors in love, so that the inferiors may be an honor to them and to their government. That's the Westminster Larger Catechism. 127. Is there more? Why, yes. Westminster Larger Catechism 128 says, What are the sins of inferiors to their superiors? The sins of inferiors against their superiors are all neglect of the duties required towards them, envying at, contempt of, rebellion against, their persons and places in their lawful counsels, commands and corrections, cursing and mocking, and all such refractory and scandalous carriage as proves a shame and dishonor to the inferiors and their government. I did not write that. That was written by the Westminster Divines. They said that is how we understand our role in being subject. So I do want to close eventually. What can we do? Again, we can ask four questions. We can say, what is good? What is good that we can come alongside and encourage? You should ask yourself that question. What is broken that we can fix? There's food insecurity and homelessness in Fauquier County. And this church works to fix it by giving meals. It's something that we do. We're good citizens. And if somebody were to say, well, you know, that's a liberal thing. People are going to think you're liberals if you're out there feeding the homeless. We would say, excuse me, it's in scripture. What is missing that we should create? This is always the hardest one. It's always hard to imagine what's missing and then create it. But somebody did that with an iPhone. I mean, it's, it's like Steve Jobs was like walking around one day. He's like, you know, it'd be great. It'd be great if like my entire album collection, my calendar, my ability to mail people, the entire encyclopedia of the universe, uh, and my phone was all one thing. And then he just says to some, you know, technician, hey, can you make that happen? Uh, What? So, I'm going to give you a tip on this. Post-Dobbs, right, there are going to be more women carrying children to term. Hopefully. Are there any systems and structures that don't exist, that should exist, that can help them? That we could help to create? And what is evil that we should eradicate? Some closing thoughts. Polarization is counter to the gospel. Polarization is counter to the gospel, and it requires one thing, weak disciples, because weak disciples are easily moved. So we need strong disciples.
Living in faithful presence requires trust. We will not get dialed up by social media if we recognize that Christ is making all things new. That is a promise and it is going to happen. And our salvation is secure, kept for us, undefiled, unfading. It requires wisdom, obedience, humility, and love. And all of these, all of these things are possible because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to to preach your word. To help us understand how we're supposed to live in these times as Christians. When we are very, very easily drawn towards other postures. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, In this communion meal...